Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Efren Perdomo Lopez. Good morning. Legend has it that guy's still around hanging around partying, so. Uh, uh, night to Shine, what a fun night. It was so fun to be there and to celebrate our guests. Um, if you are at any part uh, a volunteer and volunteered your time either Thursday evening or Friday night, uh, we just want to say thank you on behalf of Salem Alliance. So uh, what a fun night. Yeah, give a hand for that as well. Uh, welcome to those on live stream as well. And uh, if you don't know me, my name is Efren Perdomo. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Um, also, uh, some others call me the Magnificent Preacher. I don't know if that's the best title for me, but it's one. Uh, well, so hey, it's, it's been a minute since I've been up here, so I just would love to tell you a little bit about my family. Um, talking about my mom's side, uh, most of my family and extended relatives and my grandparents live in Oaxaca, Mexico, specifically uh, in a small town called La Trinidad. You want to say that with me? La Trinidad. Okay, none of you did it with me, so do it again. La Trinidad. All right, now you know Spanish. Good job. I know it's a hard one. You got to roll your R's on that one. Um, I've only been able to visit once in seventh grade, but on rare occasions, my grandparents get to visit us here in Oregon. Here's a picture of Greta and I on, uh, and my grandparents in their last visit. They are, yeah, oh, they're so cute, all, all three of them. Um, <laughs> And uh, so wholesome, my grandparents are awesome, and so very short. Um, just to give you kind of a, a reference, I think Greta's on her knees, I'm in a chair, and we're still kind of leveled with our grandparents. So, uh, the last time they visited, like any Mexican reunion, we ate and slept for 90% of our time. Um, but at some point, uh, we were all in my, uh, my mom's apartment, uh, sitting there, and at the corner of my eye, I see both of my grandparents sitting right next to each other, without saying anything, sitting there quietly and calmly, looking out the window. Now, mind you, this window is nothing to look at. It's just a view of the street parking outside of the apartment. Um, but there they were, sitting there, not saying a word, not checking their phone. And so I thought to myself, I wonder how long they can sit there silently. So I waited, checked my phone, looked at some Instagram reels, Facebook, checked emails, responded to a couple emails. Um, as the time went by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, uh, 20 minutes go by, 30, one hour, and then they're there for an hour and a half without saying one word, just staring out the window. Like, who does that? How do you do that? And I know they live a slower life living in a smaller town, but still, like, how are you not bored by that point? Reflecting back, uh, it occurred to me just how uncomfortable I am with silence. But not only that, but also how our culture no longer knows how to be silent. 
with our cell phones, TV, and technology, able to fill any empty void necessary. I mean, even our conversations, uh, we have this culture of small talk that whenever there's an awkward pause or empty noise, we fill it in with things we don't really care about. We just want to fill the void. Sometimes we uh, bring it to our dinner tables as a defense mechanism uh, to avoid any sense of conflict or even some sort of intimacy. And the place where this ugly vice kind of gets us most is in uh, seasons of deep pain and suffering. We also hate pain. And so we fill our schedules with time empty, with our, in our time with empty noise and activity. When, even when we counsel someone, uh, a loved one who has experienced deep tragedy, we will often feel inclined to try to fill the void with cliches and empty words. Somehow, in all of this, we've learned to use noise to bypass our hearts. And the truth is, we often suppress and hide our own laments in meaningless noise and insincere speech. So the question we have to ask is, what is God's response to this type of predicament? What is God's rhythm of silence and speech in our suffering? And how are we to reflect the image of God in our silence and speech? We're continuing our sermon series on the books of Job and James titled Wisdom, Humility, and Worship Found Through Suffering. Certainly an inviting title that Rob came up with, am I right? I believe our text this morning will provide us into a window of how God attends to our pain and suffering in the rhythm of his speech and silence. In exploring Job's suffering and James' wisdom on the tongue, my hope is for us to see God's invitation to experience deeper levels of his love in the deepest places of our pain. So if you would, turn uh, to Job chapter 2, and we'll uh, start in verse 8. And it'll be on the screen for you as well if you want to follow up there. Verse 8. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their home to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite and uh, Bilidad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. This is the word of the Lord. Now, just for a second, appreciate the Bible's willingness to engage the hardest part of the human experience, suffering. 
Job's story is hard to stomach at times, but also at times we, can, we see that we have similar stories or know others with stories that help us relate and empathize with the gravity of Job's loss. Stories that have prompted us to question God's goodness, justice, and even his presence. And to this end, I believe Job and James lead us to a place of greater trust and deeper love in godly silence and speech. So first, godly silence, the language of intimacy and embodied presence. One of the more subtle themes integral to the book's plotline is this theme of silence. Consider Job's silence first. What we know between chapters one and two is Job experiences two waves of tragedies, the first tragedy being the death of his livestock, his servants, and his children, while the second being his bodily disease. Now, notice Job's first response is grief, but grief in the form of blessing and worshiping God through praise and prayer. But the second time, Notice that after receiving the bodily disease, Job does not respond in that same way. Instead, the text describes him scraping his body with pottery and sitting among the ashes silently. Secondly, in the marital dispute, in verses 9 through 10, where Job's wife tells Job to curse God and die, the author intentionally ends with this phrase, which in the, in the Hebrew, uh, it reads more literally, literally this way, and Job did not sin with his lips. In the final scene, we encounter Job's friends sitting with him in silence. It's not only Job's silence that's highlighted, but also God's. Even though we do not see God, even though we do see God conversing with the accuser in the heavenly realms at the beginning of the story, we never see God direct Job uh, or talk to Job directly until chapter 38. There's only 42 chapters. What's he doing that whole time? God's absence throughout the dialogues causes the reader some confusion, much like God's silence does in our own suffering. We're pushed to our ends to hear what will be God's reply at the end. And throughout the dialogues with the friends, God's silence begs us to ask the same questions we ask when we experience our own suffering. Why is this happening? Where are you, God? And is your silence purposeful? I actually believe that uh, the friends of Job's silence at the end of chapter two provides us with the interpretive key to see the purpose of the silence in all of this. Ironically, this is like one of the only things the friends do that is right in the story. Aligned with the ancient Near Eastern custom of Shiva, they wail loudly, tear their robes, throw dust over their heads, and sit silently until Job speaks. It's clear to Job's friends that this pain, this type of pain, transcends words. All there is to do is to be an embodied presence sitting there intimately long enough to share the pain that Job has. The only language able to lessen the severity of this pain is silence. Our mistake in this passage is to see Job's silence as this pitiful reality instead of the necessary element for godly lament. 
I'll say that one more time. Our mistake in this passage is to see Job's silence as a pitiful reality instead of a necessary element for godly lament. You see, God needed to travel into the deeper layers of Job's soul so that he could go all the way to what was really at the bottom of his heart. Henry Nouwen says this, somewhere we know that without silence, words lose their meaning. That without listening, uh, speaking no longer heals. And that without distance, closeness cannot cure. And we also assume that because God is silent, he is also absent. But what if the truth is actually the exact opposite? What if God is intimately grieving and present with the friends those seven days? What if God was waiting long enough in silence to grieve with Job properly? It seems what we know about God and what we know about this story that does exactly what's going on. A couple of years ago, I planned a two-week backpacking trip, um, traveling from Redmond, Oregon, all the way to Dallas, Texas. And on this trip, I got to hit some national and state parks uh, in Idaho, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Uh, Driving uh, what was the best mobile to go on a long trip, 2001 Honda Odyssey. Um, I'm glad I got rid rid of it before I met Greta, or else, who knows, we would have maybe not dated. Just kidding, she's not that superficial. And here's a picture of me at the top of Angel's Landing in Mount Zion. Um, And at the time, I'd just finished my third year of graduate study and was pretty close to burning out. So I needed some sort of big trip in the summer to just get my head straight and uh, just go on a trip. I'm pretty introverted, so two weeks alone just sounded like heaven to me. Sounded like the vacation I just needed. The first couple of days, of course, were paradise for me, in nature, in quiet, reading, hiking, and surviving on the bare essentials. Yet, day seven. Day seven is a day I'll never forget. It's late at night, and I'm under the stars, far away, as far as you can be from the noise of the city, and as far away from any human interaction. And I'm sitting there quietly in the silence until silent breaks. And it's not from uh, any ravenous wolves or any bears or creatures or even the gas that I, that I had from the lentils I ate earlier. <laughs> but it was from my own weeping. I know, hard pivot for sure. But I'm sitting there and I'm crying, strangely, and it's like weeping, weeping, like, like deep, calling to deep, and I'm sitting there, and it was honestly the silence that allowed me to realize just how far away from God I really was, and um, it, it occurred to me that many of my unspoken pains Hurts and longings had been buried underneath and suppressed from all the noise. And at this moment, my mind was no longer able to escape my real loneliness. And also the wounds of my parents' separation um, that year. 
This was never at all intended to be some sort of spiritual awakening for me. But boy, was it. And certainly a clear, concrete healing moment for me and God. And the thing about it is that God didn't have to say a word. He just had to listen. You see, silence is God's invitation to comfort us with something more healing than his voice, his presence. Silence is so critical to our faith journey because it allows us to move from the distant question of why is this happening to the more intimate question of where are you, God, in this? So, what is the question you are asking? Second, godly speech, the language of power and embodied wisdom. Finally, in chapter three, Job begins to speak the honest pains of his soul. Uh, The dialogue between Job and his friends proves to us that words are a weapon in the hands of the enemy. And although Job's friends at the end of chapter two do provide a healing presence for him, they soon to begin to deepen those wounds with theological jargon. Uh, Comforting silence turns into accusations, justification for Job's suffering, and in their attempts to defend God, they actually misunderstand his grace and love completely, like the core characteristic of who God actually is. And James, he speaks to this in the power of words in his chapter three, um, so we're going to put that on the screen for us to read. So if you would, follow with me on the screen. And it says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We, may, we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the body, parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Uh, thanks, James, for that. That's, wow. Not a lot of tact with his words, eh? James very bluntly says our words are a powerful force creating destruction. How much more destructive can they be in the vulnerability of sorrow? So then, what words can we say? Scripture's answers seem to be that it has to be wisdom from above. It is only the power of God's spoken wisdom that can steward godly sorrow. Godly lament needs the fertile ground of silence and the waters of wisdom to cultivate trust. Godly lament needs the fertile ground of silence and the waters of wisdom to cultivate trust. James, later in verse 17, says this, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. 
It is also peace-loving and gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. You see, silence allows us to eventually hear the wisdom of God's spoken word, which is always loving and gentle. Yet it is also how God chooses to participate with you and I in our own words. When others suffer, we first sit in silence long enough to feel their pain. Then we provide space for lament and then wait on God for his wisdom to speak. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of wise bring healing. And although James provides us with the negative example, the opposite is also true. Wisdom has the ability to bring life in our seasons in the wilderness. The beginning chapters of Genesis tell us that when God speaks, he creates life. Our words in the hands of God are a powerful force to create life in the midst of suffering. As many of you know, as many of you know I get the privilege of working with individuals preparing for, to be ministers of the gospel over there at RTI in the other building. My role encompasses a couple of things, uh, but probably the most meaningful thing is that I get to walk with students as a pastor. And sometimes that's through pain and suffering. Um, I see a picture, this is of our last graduating class on the left, or my left. Um, and the next picture is the chair most of our students sit in when they have a meeting with myself. Um, my chair is sort of getting a reputation of this is the place where you go to cry, which is not the best reputation, I might add. Um, one final thing, if you want to intimidate students, just have this ominous sign with some random language and they'll freak them out. I, I, you, can, you can bet that. Um, but of course, sure, some of them come for academic discipline, but most of the time, people are there, our students are there to, uh, to lament real life sorrows. And I mean conversations that will bring anyone to tears like real-life hardship. Early on, I was often tempted uh, to respond in the same way that Job's friends did. Uh, words with a little bit of truth, but not wisdom from above. Cliches and empty words, not meant to offer healing, but to suppress the uncomfortability of pain. Now I find myself waiting just a bit longer through experience sitting longer in the pauses and remaining silent. Just silent enough so that in some way I may in some sense absorb the pain that someone is receiving or feeling. And also long enough for my countenance to change to empathy. It's in these pauses that students often begin to feel the permission to properly lament. And it's only in these moments that God might graciously give me a word of wisdom or a prayer to the student on their behalf. So you have to ask yourself, are your words to those hurting being shaped by God's wisdom or by your comfortability? Are your words to those hurting shaped by God's wisdom or your comfortability? 
You see, suffering often leads us to confusion and doubt, yet the book of Job and James teaches us that God's love inhabits our suffering through his silence and words of wisdom, which foster trust. And in light of this, I believe Job's story in particular leads us to these two practices. And I'd suggest writing these down. Number one, silence. Allowing Holy Spirit the time and the space to unveil the unspoken longings and lament of your soul. Number two, lament. Bringing our complaints before God in honest speech in his presence and the presence of loving community. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we've been trying to provide some space here for the practice of lament um, and for the next couple of weeks. Last week, Rob led us through our first step, which is turning to God by taking communion. This week's movement is bringing our complaints to God through, ironically, the practice of silence. Uh, We'll have the same props from last week on the screen. I'd love for you to have the time to reflect on those. What we're gonna do is, uh, once I leave the stage, I would love for you to spend that one to two minute of time to sit there, to allow God to search the deepest parts about you, and for you to go there with him, and to, to see what needs and laments you have in the deepest part of you that need to be vocalized to him. And as we turn into the extended time of worship, let this be a declaration of your trust. So before I leave, the worship team will soon begin playing after that. But before I head out, I want to read this quote for you by Cardinal Sarah as a way to posture our hearts for this practice. The authentic search for silence is the quest for a silent God and the interior life. It is a quest for a God who reveals himself in the depths of our being. If man seeks God and wants to find him, if he desires a life of intimate union with him, silence is the most direct path and the surest means of attaining it all these. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.